You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. She's talking to me from Seattle. Matilda, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Matilda, let's talk about The Freezer Door. This is your most recent book, um, which has been getting great attention and reviews. Um, tell me a little bit about it. I know you're going to be reading from it, but, but let's talk about the, the book itself and, uh, and, and where it came from. Yeah, so The Freezer Door is about um, desire and its impossibility. Um, and through that lens, it's about the dream of the city as the place where you find everything and everyone that you never imagined and whether that possibility even exists anymore. So it takes place in Seattle, um, and I'm sort of searching for those moments of connection that might change or extend or transform or challenge everything, but I'm in a city that forecloses the possibilities that the city once allowed. Which, which means what, that it once allowed? You mean that... that um in, in terms of kind of queer desire, or, or, or what did it not, not allow, or what is it now allowing? Well, I think that, you know, in our gentrified cities, um, what we used to look for was that sort of density of um, connection, or that density of experience, or that, you know, that sudden look on the street, you know, with someone you never encountered before, um, that shifted everything for you. But now people walk around in the city as if they're in the suburbs. So there's this gated mentality, this fear of anything that's unplanned, um, this white picket fence, you know, inside the eyes. And so instead of people looking for that surprising interaction, they're instead walling off the possibility for changing the people that they once were, right? So they're not coming to the city anymore for, for that change. And to me, you know, what's the point of living in a city if you can't exist in public space? And if you can't exist in public space as a place where we're all together, right? Not a place, like, we, we can have private space anywhere. But the, the dream of the city is that, you know, that all of us together, something shifts. And let's let's talk more about that because you talk about the impossibility of desire. Um, that connects to what you're saying, right? What do you mean exactly by that? Well, I mean that people are walling off. Um, you know, like like in the book, you know, I'm um, I'm existing in public space regardless of the consequences. Um, so some of that is public sex. Some of that is. Um, leaning against trees and experiencing the way that that changes the form of my body in that moment. And some of that is, um, like, desire to me, in a queer sense, is that desire uh, changes everything, right? So desire is desire to get fucked against a tree, but desire is also what happens when you're looking at the light and the way it hits the building at a particular time of day. And desire is also when you're on the bus and suddenly aware of sensation in a different way. But I feel like part of gentrification now is that there's even the gentrification of 
um, of our bodies and our desires and love and intimacy, all of that has been gentrified too. And instead, people have this suburbanized mentality that is facilitated by technology and this certain kind of disembodiment, even when um, engaging in what, what you might consider embodied experience. Right, and 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 so that's and thus the impossibility of it. It's this, it's this new culture. It's gentrification. It's all the things you're talking about that make those interactions impossible. I don't know if they're impossible, but the the, the possibility is limited. Um, so that's why it's not the gentrification and impossibility or desire and possibility. They're all existing in the same space, right? It's just that the mentality limits the um, the possibilities for transformation. And and tell me about before you read from the book. It, that's what you're exploring in the book, right? You're exploring those those interactions, those those moments that we're talking about that are not as possible or. or or perhaps impossible. I know that's kind of a poetic term too, but um, that's what's being explored in the book. Yeah. I mean the book, you know, the first line of the book is one problem with gentrification is that it always gets worse. And so that line sits on its own page. Um, And then the book itself is taking place in that landscape, right? So gentrification is the landscape in which the book takes place. So in that landscape, I might be searching for connection or intimacy or um, love or friendship or consistency. And, And in that, I might be feeling devastation and connection and Um, longing and loss and trauma. Um, So it's kind of like this search for embodiment. But in that search, it's not just me searching for that, but the text itself is searching. So when the text can no longer hold, it breaks. So that's why, you know, there's a kind of fragmented structure that is also searching for its own embodiment at the same time that I'm searching. I'd love to hear some of the book. You're going to read a, a passage from The Freezer Door? Uh, sure, yeah. I'll read from about a third of the way through. I hate waking up in the middle of a dream. And yet, this is how we live our lives. We're on the side of a road that isn't really a road. I mean, it's blocked off. Or... We're on the side of a road that is really a road. But actually, neither of these roads are really roads because we're in a park. So you can't say two roads diverge. But you can still be part of manifest destiny. I wish I wasn't, but I am. And that's probably the best way to describe gay cruising. What happened to the dream of desire creating something else? That's what I'm wondering. Michael wants to make a historical monument sign mourning the loss of the park as a cruising site, but he's never even cruised the park. I say, why not make it happen instead? And he says, there are only ugly guys there. And when I say all of us are ugly, he says, 
not you. But can I get distracted by a compliment? Remember, follow the leader? That was a critique of leadership, right? Why does it feel like no one else learned this lesson? Now I'm in the other space. This one has rooms, but not room. I'm walking in circles, which are actually squares, and then I stop. And then I'm walking in circles, which are actually squares. The moment between the end and the beginning, that's what I want to convey. Something about how the music stops. In this case, I mean literally. The music stops, and then the whole place is darkness. And I wish I could say groaning or moaning, but mostly just quiet and a creak here and there, the flush of the toilet. I'm studying the blackboard over the urinal where people usually write things like BB and 108, but the board's just been erased, so all you see is the way the black surface is peeling off, and I wonder if that makes it harder to write, but I try, and I can't tell. Maybe I'm covering the blackboard in little hearts, or maybe just two hearts, or maybe there are no hearts at all, because this is a sex club. So the most important thing is when I'm changing back into my clothes, and I say to the guy next to me in the locker room, why does everyone at a gay bathhouse act like they're straight? What do you mean, he says, like he's straight. If desire is what makes sex possible, then what makes the sex that makes desire impossible? There's a probiotic powder designed for anal insertion called the colonizer. I did not even make this up. And then there's the intersection between colonialism and restaurant reviews. Not to mention the intersection between restaurant reviews and gentrification, which is also about colonialism. Maybe that's why food writing is so popular. It's like writing about food releases the reviewer of the obligation to think about any structural issue deeper than taste buds. The requirement of the dead audience is its own kind of violence, making us silence ourselves in order to experience public engagement, emptying presence in order to be present, now I'm just present in all the pain from sitting still. That's how my body works. Or doesn't work. That sudden moment when you feel like you can't exist in the world, it's just not possible. Of course I could have gotten up during the reading, but I was feeling the pressure of not wanting to seem rude. This always happens. But still, I'm ready to go dancing. I'm out in the world in the right outfit, and we're only a few blocks away. But then no one else wants to go anymore. And Graham, Adrian's boyfriend, says the DJ isn't even starting until after I need to go to bed. And even if I stay up that late, then the smoke machine will be on. And that's when I get so sad. I just crash through the floor while I'm standing there like I might still be able to speak. 
We go upstairs to look at books. There are so many horrible gay books. Someone's described as a pioneering activist because he testified against Don't Ask, Don't Tell while he was in the military. A supermodel came out. I don't know when or why. Marriage this and marriage that. The liberal pundit saying now we need more. More what? More marriage. And then I find a book that I really love. And I talk about it for a while so I won't seem like I hate everything. In other words, I hate everything. And then Adrian says he's feeling so tired anyway. Oh, well, time for drinks. And I know that I'm utterly alone. I want to be out in the world, and I want to feel pleasure. I want to feel connected. Instead, I find myself leaning against a tree and then leaning into it, letting my body relax so that maybe there's something left to learn that won't hurt me. So many people have written about alienation, and yet we still keep feeling it. Just as I'm inserting that probiotic enema, the plumber knocks at the door. This must be a metaphor. But sometimes the best thing about writing is the way you feel afterwards. Like there finally might be space in the sky. Like there finally might be space for more writing. Like there finally might be more sky. Thank you, Matilda. Um, I kept quiet on this end. I could have, I could have laughed and, and, and had a number of reactions, which I was inside, you know, because by turns the writing is, 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 is really funny and hilarious and also very insightful and, um, and, and kind of wonderful to hear along with. Um, the, 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 the comment about the probiotic enema called the colonizer is, is kind of hysterical. That is true. You didn't make that up. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> it's such a wonderful. There's so much play. out I'm there. Worried, we don't right? even have to make it up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's like a wonderful play on words. You kind of wonder, did they realize it when they made that word colonizer? I mean, you know, you can of course pronounce it in a few different ways. So, um, yeah, great writing, and 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 of course the the humor and and, and wit that that I've heard from you before. I. I'm interested to know how this, how, I mean, the issues that we're talking about here, that you're talking about in the book and that we're discussing um, and that you just kind of framed in that, in that passage are issues that, that got even worse during the pandemic, didn't they? Or what happened during the pandemic? There's this, there's this kind of alienation and, and a variety of things that gentrification has brought in a, a change in, in, in a number of ways, you know, um, but but the, has the pandemic also deepened this? What's, what's your sense of, of that? I do think the pandemic has, you know, sort of deepened the divide between, certainly between the single and the coupled, the sick and the well, 
the, um, the safe and the unsafe. Um, I think there's a, a renewed polarization, and it's sort of in some ways um, some of the worst aspects of, you know, a sort of gentrified mentality where anything that isn't actually dangerous becomes threatening, the pandemic actually has said, well, actually, those things are threatening. <laughs> like someone breathing in your space might kill you. And so in that sense, I feel like it has validated some of the worst fears that people have about strangers, you know, or even friends or people they're intimate with. And so I think um, at the same time, the thing that was really interesting for me is, you know, this book came out, you know, in November and, you know, in the midst of the, of the pandemic. And I feel like, you know, if, if this book had come out in a different time, I think some people would have understood, you know, what I'm saying about loneliness and alienation or, or acknowledged that they related. But because of this moment, I feel like there was a much broader sense where people were like, oh, well, of course, I know. Because <laughs> everyone, you know, now was, uh, you know, articulating that sense of loneliness or lack of connection. And, because of isolation, um, because of the isolation of the pandemic specifically. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like, I guess, so. I, in that sense, I feel like there is a possibility there. I don't, I don't know that it will be actualized, but that possibility of all of us realizing that, right? Unfortunately, I don't see that happening, but I did see it in terms of the release of the book, and at least that gave me a sense of connection in this very alienating time, you know, because I was doing a book tour that was all virtual, and I thought, I mean, a lot of the book is about, you know, the... I mean, I've resisted everything that's virtual in my life, you know, and then suddenly it was only that. But I was still able to feel, like, really deep sense of connection and, and like we were creating, you know, a kind of intimacy in our own rooms together somehow. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I mean, to, to take the example of, uh, of the park, which I loved in there, you know, there's no cruising in this park anymore. We should put a monument to it, but... You know, you can't really do that. So now, of course, in the pandemic, there's, there's just nobody in the park, right? Um, so, uh, I mean, I imagine, so, so post-pandemic, you know, is there, and I don't know if you see this coming or, or I'm just reaching here, but now, of course, everybody's back in the park. Everybody's really happy to be back in the park. I know in New York, in Tompkins Square Park, you know, where there was just a few people on the, on, the, on the lawn in the middle of the park. Now all the blankets are right next to each other. It's packed, right? Um, do you think there's kind of a reversal happening here? I mean, people talk about the roaring 20s, you know, a kind of strange return. Uh, what's happening now? Do you, do you see a kind of shift in a lot of what you're talking about because of this kind of we can't wait to get outside and we can't wait to be closer to each other or – or is it not that simple? Um, I don't, yeah, I feel like for me, I feel like there's a missed opportunity. Like I feel like over the last year, we've had a possibility of, of being able to like reimagine touch, reimagine intimacy, reimagine how we inhabit space together. Like I think we already lived in a world that was barely um, livable for so many, right? 
So people are so desperate to go back to that world that was already barely livable and are not actually thinking about, you know, any kind of collectivity or communal possibility. And, um, you know, like here in Seattle, we have like parks where they don't even, the water fountains are still off. <laughs> or where, you know, people are, are, are living in the parks because they need to and, and, you know, then constantly being arrested in the park, right? And so the sort of war on the people who are the most vulnerable has accelerated. And the sort of centralization of the people who have the most access has also deepened. And so, you know, I feel like there's a kind of, it's, I, I actually think it's kind of nihilistic, the kind of, you know, this obsession with like, we want to get back to normal. And I'm like, normal is what we're against, right? <laughs> right. Normal is what oppresses <laughs> us, you know? We need to get way past that and into a, a, a potential for, you know, a kind of um, communal possibility that transforms the everyday and challenges dominant institutions of oppression and creates a world that we can all live with. I love that. Yeah, thank you. So well said, and um, I couldn't agree more. In in to ask you one more question about your this book and the and the tour. So this is a virtual tour. I heard you read once in New York, but that was a few years ago. How did a virtual tour work, and and how did that compare to what you're used to, which is a in person tour when maybe you're reading with other people as well? And of course, there's you know, the audience surrounded by books in a bookstore. This was completely different. I don't know how many how many readings you did in, in your in your tour, but I imagine it must have been a completely different experience. And um, how how was that? Was there was there a point in it where you thought this is this is more than would have happened in a bookstore or or, or, or some other moment from the book tour where you struck you that there's something kind of extremely different happening here because it's such an odd way to have a tour. Virtually. Yeah, it is very odd. (laughs) I didn't know what to expect, you know, when I started. But I will say that, like, immediately I really did feel a a deep intimacy with the audience, even though we were not in the same room. And, you know, it's all online, of course. It's on Zoom or on Crowdcast. So it's live, and it's in bookstores in different cities or in libraries in different cities or, you know, at the Poetry Project, or different venues. Um, and, you know, in each, in each event, I am in conversation with another author, generally, online. Um, and, but, yeah, so I feel like it's hard to say, because I did actually feel that intimacy, and I did feel a deep and vulnerable connection with the book in a way that I did not expect. And so part of that, I think, though, is because of my own isolation, right? Because, you know, I, I still went on walks every day the whole pandemic, but, the, you know, I, did, I would, certainly wasn't having anyone in my apartment, and my social, socializing was extremely limited, right? So, um, so part of it might have been that, and also that I knew it was going to be different. So I guess... Yeah, so, I mean, usually I really live off of the audience's reaction. 
um, you know, like you talked about when I was reading and, and you were thinking of all these different reactions that you were having. That's what I live off of, you know, in a live reading. Like people laughing, people crying, people, you know, emoting. Right, um, right. You know, and in a virtual book tour, you only really see that in, you know, like brief little comments in the chat, right? <laughs> like, but it's still, I still felt it. And, you know, and so I feel like, you know, because the book is reaching toward a kind of vulnerability and people were really meeting it, you know, both in terms of the events and in terms of, you know, people, interviews and reviews. Like, I did, I, for me, I felt, feel like my pandemic had several different, um, you know, over the last, like there were several different um, periods and, I think there was like, like a markedly different, like I felt much less isolation like during and after the book tour than I did before. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, because I guess in a way, um, it's so interesting that the, that though there aren't like those reactions, the laugh, that audience, the live audience thing that we feel comfortable doing with one another, we are all in our homes, you know, we're, we're all in very intimate spaces while listening, you know, to read. So, you know, that has its own weight, I imagine, um, its own its own intimacy, its own level of kind of comfort or or, or, or something different than, than it would be in a public reading um, and being in a room with other people. You have another book uh, coming out in the, in the fall. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That's an anthology, correct? Yes, yeah, so it's an anthology I edited, and it's called Between Certain Death and a Possible Future, Queer Writing on Growing Up with the AIDS Crisis. And so I think usually when people are talking about the AIDS crisis in, in the U.S., people are talking about two generations. So they're talking about the generation that grew up and experienced sexual liberation, and then they watched as entire, you know, circles of friends died of a mysterious disease while the government did nothing to intervene, right? So that's the dominant narrative, and it's a crucial narrative. And now we hear another narrative, which is about a generation that didn't experience that trauma and grew up with seeing HIV as a manageable condition that could be treated by effective medications and can't imagine that trauma. And so this book is actually not it's about the generation that's between those two. And that's the generation I'm a part of. And so for my generation, we grew up with AIDS, right? Like AIDS was part of what it meant to become queer. So certain death was all we could imagine when we imagined our own desires. We did not experience sexual liberation and we couldn't imagine drugs that would ever help us stay alive. So we grew up somewhere in between, and we have parts of both of the experiences of the earlier generation and the current generation. And so in some ways, I think it's a bridge between. Like, people keep saying, oh, how will those generations talk to one another? And well, I'm like, well, hello, there's a generation in between. And so that's the intervention I sort of want to make is sort of complicating that narrative and um, presenting you know, these generational stories in all of their range. That's very exciting. And so that will come out in uh, this fall? Yeah, it comes out in, in October. 
That's exciting. And I thank you so much for talking with me today. I want to ask you um, what you're reading at the moment. I'm always curious. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I just read this gorgeous book um, called Borderlands Apocrypha by Anthony Cody. Um, it's a poetry collection, and um, it's, uh, the layout of the book is horizontal, and so I knew it was going to have an experimental form, and I opened it up to, to see what the form was like before I went to bed, and then I had to read the whole thing. Um, you know, it's, very, it's, it's, it's about the history of lynching of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the U.S., so it's a, you know, it's a very uh, intense topic, and the form really, like, facilitates, like, a deeper um, and more wide-ranging and surprising engagement with the topic at the same time. Matilda, that sounds interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that with me, and thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate your, your reading, your work, your sense of humor, your intelligence. Thank you so much, Matilda, for talking with me today. Oh, thank you so much, Brainerd. I really enjoyed it. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.